Well, in the world in which we live, we are surrounded by warning signs. Uh, As you're out and about, as you go in places, you'll probably see things posted. Literally, you probably don't open many packages. That if you look carefully, somewhere on there, there's not some kind of warning. And these warnings range all the way from the incredibly ridiculous to the incredibly serious. Right on the ridiculous end, you have, you know, the sleeping pill that has a warning on the package that says, warning, this may cause drowsiness. Well, I certainly hope so, right? If it's a sleeping pill. Or, you know, the chainsaws that have the, you know, warning, do not hold the chainsaw at this end, right? Things that it's like, okay, I I should know that. I I don't think I need to be warned again. Or I found this one this week, a drive and talk speaker for your car. So, you know, you don't have to hold your phone like you're not supposed to. So you can have the speaker and drive and talk. Well, if you look carefully enough at the packaging, it says, never use this speaker while driving your car. Uh, that, That makes you scratch your head a little bit. And then you have warnings that you're not quite sure what to do with. I mean, have we had any of those in, in 2020 where you get told something and then, oh, and actually, actually now do this, and, and you're trying to figure out what, what are you supposed to do? But then there's also warnings that are very clearly incredibly serious. This afternoon, you have sudden and intense pains in your chest and shortness of breathing. Uh, that's a warning sign you should take very seriously. You might be having a heart attack, and you should go to the emergency room. Uh, that's, that's incredibly serious. So we have ridiculous, we have serious, and then we have, we're not quite sure what to do with. And also in that category, if you go to some of the parks here in our area, or especially if they're kind of bordering the foothills or kind of the edge of town, or if like me, you're uh, playing golf at a golf course where some of the parts are, you know, just the grass is growing like crazy and nobody's really going in there, you might see a sign that says, warning or beware of rattlesnakes. And when I'm playing golf, it's always a sign that it's like, well, how seriously do I take that? Because sometimes you're like, well, I, my ball's in there, but I can see it, and I don't see anything else, so I'm going to chance it. And other times, it's all just overgrown. You can't see anything. And you're like, you know, I'm just going to hit another one, or I'm just going to you know, drop over here, right? How seriously should I take that? Well, a couple months ago, my dad was in town, so I went out, and I was uh, playing golf with him, and I had a really bad drive deep, deep into the weeds, And so I'm going out there, and I'm looking for my ball, and I didn't see any signs. But as I was walking through the weeds, I saw something near my feet that at first looked like some plastic on the ground. And then I looked more closely, and it was a pretty long, like, whole shedded snakeskin. Even, you you know, you could see that the small kind of diamond-shaped head where even me, I'm like, "I, I think I know what kind of snake that's from. And I start looking around and treading a lot more cautiously. And I go five more steps, and I see another shedded snakeskin. And this is a warning. And at this point, I'm going to take this warning pretty seriously. But I'm like so far in the weeds that I'm like, there's not really any easy path out. So I kind of start slowly, carefully watching my step, heading that direction. The good news was I did find my ball. I didn't get bit by a snake. And I made a par on the hole. So it worked out well. It worked out well for me, but that was a warning that usually I'm like, oh, yeah, they say rattlesnakes. I've never seen one before. And then seeing multiple skins, I was like, I'm going to be a little more careful here. Well, today we're going to look at John chapter 8. And what we're going to see really is Jesus giving a warning to the people that were listening to him. And if we're going to evaluate this warning on the scale of, ah, you know, kind of a ridiculous, unnecessary warning to this is very serious, 
we're going to find there's really no warning that could be more serious than the warning that we see Jesus give today. And so we want to look at the warning, understand it, understand it, and make sure we have heeded this warning from Jesus. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 30 today. John 8, 13 through 30. And just as a refresher as we've been going through this, this is still all happening in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a big uh, Jewish holiday in the time of Christ, a big Jewish holiday today. It's going on actually right now as we speak. There are people in Jerusalem living for the week in huts that they have constructed to remind themselves of when they lived in tents in the wilderness for 40 years. And as a part of this feast, there were different ceremonies. One was the high priest would dip this cup of water in the pool of Siloam and take it and pour it out on the altar. And it was in the midst of that, we think, that Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And at nighttime, as a part of this festival, they would light these huge candelabras in the court of the temple, lighting up the whole temple and really the whole city. And it was most likely in the context of that where they remembered that they were led in the night in the wilderness by a pillar of fire that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what we're going to see today is, well, what was the result? After Jesus makes that claim that we looked at last week, what do people say? What do people do? And we, so we pick it up in verse 13. So the Pharisees, in response to this amazing claim that Jesus said, so the Pharisees said to him, you are not bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, I don't know if that was their tone of voice, but it's probably something to that effect, right? Immediately, Jesus makes this great claim, and they don't respond with, hallelujah, praise the Lord. They don't say, wow, the Messiah is here. They say, we don't believe you. We need witnesses. They respond with immediate, willful unbelief. And we're going to dig into that and come back and look more at how Jesus responds to that. But Jesus responds really by rebuking them and answering their question about witnesses. And we'll dig into that. But it leads to this warning starting in verse 21. And so that's where I want us to start. What is this warning that we're talking about? Well, in verse 21, so Jesus said to them, said to the Pharisees again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus gives them this warning, you will die in your sin. And he starts by saying, I am going away. And we know what he means by that. He's going to die on the cross. He will rise again and he will ascend to heaven to be with the Father. And then he says, you will seek me, which I think he means kind of generally, you're, you're going to keep seeking the Messiah and guess what? You're not going to find him because you've missed him because it's me. You're going to keep seeking the Messiah. And because you're not going to find him because you've missed him, you are going to die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. And we know Jesus is speaking of heaven. He's saying you will die in your sin. You will be separated from heaven. You will experience the judgment of God for your sin. Unless we go on. We'll see later, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he. So let's write this down for point number one as we continue to unpack these verses. Number one, see the urgency of true faith. See the urgency of true faith. 
We are all on a path towards dying in our sins and being separated from God and separated from heaven unless we put our faith in Christ. And that's clearly why he's condemning them. They refuse to believe what Jesus is saying. Look how they respond in verse 22 to this warning that you will die in your sins and you you can't come where I'm coming. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And that's really rich with irony in what they're saying. I mean, I think the best way to understand that, lots of scholars have said, why did they go to suicide? Why did they jump to that? Well, suicide in their mind was a totally unforgivable sin. If you committed suicide, you were going straight to hell. That's just what it was. And that's a a different sermon and a different topic we address because I don't believe with what their statement was. Um, But they're like, oh, is he going to commit suicide and go straight to hell? Because, yeah, we're not going to go there. So they're jumping to suicide based on the assumption they're saying, well, we're clearly going to heaven. So if he's going somewhere we can't come, he must be going to hell. How is he going to get there? Is he going to commit suicide? That's probably what they were thinking. And it's ironic because Jesus, he's not going to commit suicide, but he is going to give up his life. And it's also ironic because they think, well, is Jesus going to end up in hell? Because we're headed towards heaven. When actually Jesus is trying to say, no, the shoe's on the other foot. I'm going to heaven and you're not headed there. But they don't get this in their response. So Jesus goes on to explain more. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, well, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard about him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so we see Jesus now explaining more to them. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. And we have to remember when Jesus, and especially in the Gospel of John, when the word world is used, it's not talking about this big globe spinning through space around the sun. Usually world is talking about the wickedness of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Jesus is saying, that's what you are of. You are of the world, which is bad. And I am not of this world. He's already implying what we mentioned when we were talking about communion, that we are sinful and separated from God. And therefore, we are on a path, verse 24, to die in our sins. And that's what he's saying to them. Unless, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, do you think the Pharisees knew the Old Testament? Yeah, that's kind of what they were supposed to. That's what they were known for. That's what they spent all their time doing. So when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, bells are going off in their head. And if you've read the Bible enough, bells should be going off in your head. And even the Greek phrase is ego eimi, which is something that we see in the Old Testament. One place that we see it, although there's some things added to it that Jesus doesn't say here, starts in Exodus chapter 3. 
the story of the burning bush. And Moses is there talking to God. God is speaking out of this burning bush. And Moses, as he's told, hey, go to Egypt and tell them, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He's kind of hesitant. He starts asking a lot of questions. He's kind of, I don't know if I'm the guy for this. Well, the first question he asks is, well, what if they ask me what your name is? What should I tell them? Do you remember what God tells Moses? I am who I am. And he says, this is my name. This is how I shall be known. And even we trace what we, the, the technical, the proper name of God, Yahweh, goes back to what God says right there. I am who I am. And that has more, if you look at a, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it has more in there, but it has that phrase, ego, Amy, I am. But then there's other places that the Pharisees would have known in the Old Testament, where even this exact phrase that Jesus used is clearly referring to God. And if you're reading through our Bible reading program, Revival from the Bible, you've been reading some of these passages this week. A lot of them are found in Isaiah. We'll show a few of them to you. Isaiah 41, 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same phrase that Jesus is using in John 8. Or look at this one, Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's, it's ironic, again, that Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins, but if you know your Old Testament, and Pharisees, I know that you do, you would know that I am the one who can blot out your transgressions and deal with your sins so you don't have to die in your sins. Or one more, and this is just a few of many that we could find, Isaiah 48, 11, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. When Jesus makes this claim, it was a claim of deity, very clearly to his audience. He is saying, hey, Pharisees, unless you believe that I am he, I am claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. This Old Testament that you claim to know so much about. And that's going to be very clear that they even understood that at the end of the chapter. We'll get to next week in verse 58 of John 8. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And how did they respond? So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They understood what Jesus was claiming. And Jesus gives this warning to them, and it's a warning that rings through all across the millennia since then. Unless you believe in Christ as God and Messiah, you will die in your sins. It's a warning of judgment that needs to be taken seriously today. And I want you to have a sense of urgency for yourself. If you are here today, do you understand that you need a Savior? And do you understand that that Savior is Jesus Christ and that He is God? He is the God of the Bible in the flesh. And there might be some of you that, that doubt that and, and you're not sure and you're you're here because somebody dragged you here or somebody invited you here, and you're wondering, well, what do I believe about Jesus? And if I pressed you on it, you'd say, well, I know this. He was a good teacher. Well, I would challenge you to take that one step further because 
Jesus wasn't just claiming to be a good teacher. Look at what he says right here. Think about how I've explained it to you from the Bible. Jesus repeatedly in the Gospel of John is claiming to be God. And even when they ask him in verse 25, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. From the beginning, he was making this claim. And every time they challenge Jesus and say, wait a minute, it sounds like you're claiming to be God. He doesn't back down, he doubles down every time. We saw that a lot in John chapter 5. If you're wondering who is Jesus, I would invite you, read Jesus' words for yourself and see what he claims to be. He doesn't merely claim to be a good teacher. He claims to be God. And if you're saying, well, I need to put my faith in him, I want you to understand that's also not just a mental check-the-box thing. That if I give you a quiz, hey, the ushers are going to come forward now with a pop quiz, and question number one is going to be, is Jesus God? That just checking the right box, yes, does not mean you have the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about. It is impossible to truly believe that Jesus is God without some sense of submission to him. There is no way to say, yes, Jesus, you are the great I am. That's cool. I'm going to go keep doing my thing. That's not how it works. We saw that in John 8, 12. If you are, have seen the light of the world, you can't walk in darkness anymore. The belief implies action. Let's just imagine, and thankfully this is not true, but let's just imagine that I got bit by a rattlesnake that day on the golf course, and I got taken to the hospital to be treated, and they said, hey, Ben, unless you believe in this anti-venom, you will die from this snake bite. And in the hospital room, I said, I believe in the antivenom, right? Is that going to save me? No. What's going to save me? Taking the antivenom because I believe in it, right? It's not just, oh, I believe in Jesus and whatever that means to you. And I'm going to write that answer down on the census or whatever it is. No. Have you put your faith in him? Have you truly trusted? You, you are God and I need to submit to you. That's really what repentance is all about. Repentance is this idea of turning, turning from I'm the boss, I'm in control to no, Jesus, you are the Lord, you are God, and I'm submitting to you. And repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus, I need you because I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness that only you can give because you died on the cross for my sins. And I need your power because I can't change my life. I can't do the right things. I need you to be at work. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's not just something up here. It's something that changes our lives so that we do not walk in darkness anymore. There's an urgency for every single one of us here today. Do you understand what this is talking about? And have you put your faith in Christ so that you will not die in your sins? And there should be an urgency, not just for ourselves, but those of us that are saying, yes, I've put my faith in Christ. There should be an urgency for others around us. How many people around us, even right here in the Treasure Valley, are on a path to die in their sins? How many people here in the Treasure Valley do not believe that Jesus Christ is the God of the Bible as he claims to be? That's one of the biggest issues with our, our Mormon neighbors or the Jehovah's Witnesses who, if they're not knocking on your door, I've heard they're, they're calling your cell phones right now if they can't knock on your door because they want to share this false gospel with you that, where Jesus is not God. That should be something urgent to us. But it's not just them. Anybody that has not truly put their faith in Christ, they're on a path to die in their sins. 
And we have a unique opportunity, again, for us in the Treasure Valley. One of the reasons this church was planted here was because this is a growing area. And I know some of you out there are, are fishermen, and you enjoy fishing. Well, where do you go to fish? I would imagine you go where the fish are, right? Well, Jesus calls us to be fishers of men. So we wanted to go where the men were, where the people were going. And we knew, hey, they're coming here. We've turned out to be more right than we even realized. 2020 is just sending even more people to the Treasure Valley. It's growing even faster than it was before. And every person moving here, we need to think, man, unless that person has put their faith in Christ, they're going to die in their sins. And so when that person is moving in next door to you and you start saying, are they going to take care of their lawn or is that going to be an issue? And you're thinking, are they moving from the West Coast because they're conservative like me? Or are they going to play loud music late at night? Those all might be valid concerns, right? But at the top of the list would be, do they know Jesus Christ and have they put their faith in him? Because if they have not, they're going to die in their sins. And you think about the other spheres of, of life that you might have, your coworkers. I mean, do we all want nice coworkers? Yeah, obviously. We want people that are easy to work with, even fun to work with, uh, that you know, we can get stuff done with. But the bottom line is, do they know Christ? That should be the most important thing. And that needs to be on our hearts. We need to take this warning seriously for ourselves, and we need to think about the implications that it has for everyone on this planet right now. Unless people believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, they're going to die in their sins. And God has given us the job of giving this message. We need to take this seriously. We need to have an urgency that people need true faith in Christ. And that's not always easy. Even there in verse 27, it says they did not understand that they had been speaking to them about the Father. And I think there's at least a part of this understanding is not that it's not making sense to them. At least a part of it is they don't want to believe. They, they know what Jesus is claiming, but they don't want to believe it. And that brings us back to the beginning, verse 13, right? Their immediate response to Jesus claiming to be the light of the world is to try to shoot it down. Excuse me. And they say, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And even if we understand what they're doing here, they're taking Jesus' own words and kind of misinterpreting them and twisting them and putting them back at Jesus. What do I mean? Well, we've seen this idea before. If you go back to John chapter 5 and verse 31, another debate that Jesus is having in Jerusalem with the religious leaders Jesus says this, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, was Jesus saying by that, hey guys, I'm lying to you. Don't believe what I'm saying to you. It's, it's not the truth. No, what he is saying, and even we saw as we went through John chapter 5, that it has a very courtroom language type feel. He's saying, hey, if this was a court, I would need witnesses to back up what I'm telling you to prove that it's true. And then guess what he does? He goes on to give them several witnesses. Well, now they're twisting it and putting it back on him, making it, well, if you're saying it, it's not true. That's not his point. And Jesus rebukes them. He, he says that in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from 
or where I'm going. Hey, time out, guys. Of course my witness to you is true. I know where I came from and where I'm going. Did you see that? Are you an eyewitness to my origins? No, you're not. But I am, and what I'm telling you is true. And then he goes on, verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. Saying, hey, this whole twisting my words back is you getting twisted in your thinking, judging according to the flesh. I, on the other hand, judge no one. I think what he means by that, because clearly later he says to them, I have much to judge. That doesn't mean he's never going to judge, but it means I'm not judging like you do in bad ways according to the flesh, and I'm not here right now to judge. That's something Christ will ultimately do. But what he is telling them in this moment is, you're judging wrongly. And then he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So he rebukes them, saying, that's not how it works. Of course I know where I came from. He he tells them that they're judging falsely, and then he says, you know what? I'll give you witnesses, because I'm saying it, and my Father is backing me up. He's rebuking them and saying, hey, the issue is not that you need more evidence. The issue is you don't believe. And that's really what he does. He rebukes their willful unbelief. And as you share the gospel, that's something we're going to see too. Point number two, think through it this way. Expect excuses of willful disbelief. Expect excuses of willful disbelief. And that's what I really think is going on here. It's not that the Pharisees don't understand It's not that they need more information or more witnesses. Jesus has already given them that in chapter 5. It's that they do not want to believe. And he goes on and he gives them, hey, you want witnesses? Here, I'm bearing witness and my father bears witness. There's two witnesses right there. So then they say to him in verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Which again is a stinging rebuke to the Pharisees. These scholars of the Torah and what we would call the Old Testament, they should know who God is. And Jesus is saying, you don't know who God is. Because if you knew who God is, you would believe me and you would know who I am. But since you don't know me, you clearly don't know the father. And even there at the end, it says, he spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And part of that is Jesus, he's in control of the situation. Nobody is going to do anything before he allows it to happen. But we also know part of the reason he wasn't arrested is people couldn't bring themselves to arrest him. In chapter 7, which was weeks ago for us, which was maybe days ago at this point, if that where the Pharisees sent people to arrest Jesus. Remember how they came back? Remember what they said? They said, we couldn't arrest him. We've never heard anybody speak like this guy. If they had really gone and heard Jesus and they were like, wow, this guy's a con artist. This guy's a quack. They would have arrested him. But they clearly saw, no, there's something about what he is saying that we can't resist, that we can't argue with. We can't arrest him. Jesus is clear. Hey, it's the power of my argument, the power of the truth of what I am saying to you is there. The problem is, you don't want to see it. And that was a problem for the Pharisees. That was a problem maybe for some of you. That's a problem for many of the people around us. People are going to say things like, well, 
I need more evidence. I need more evidence to believe what the Bible is saying. And that can be a statement that people say that they actually genuinely mean. And it's hard to tell. Sometimes people, they have genuine questions, and sometimes that's just a smokescreen. That, that, that's not really the issue, but they're just throwing out some excuse they heard in their college class from some liberal professor about why the Bible couldn't be true, and they're just throwing that out there. And we don't know. And we don't have Jesus' ability to read people's hearts. And also the Pharisees, I mean, they were about as flagrant in the smokescreen category as you could possibly be. But I want to challenge some of you, because there might be some of you here today, again, you were brought here, or you're just checking this out, and you might still have questions about the Bible. How does this work? Why should I believe this book? Why should I believe Jesus? And I think those are fair questions. Ask them. Talk to somebody at this church. Talk to me. Let's talk through those questions together. But the question I would challenge you with, if you're saying, I still have questions, if you talk to me after the service and I answered all of those questions to your satisfaction, would you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ? Because for most people I talk to, the genuinely honest answer to that question is probably not. And that's what I would challenge you. Hey, you've got more going on than just the questions you think you have. You have a problem that you, I don't, you're not willing to believe. And I would encourage you, if that's you, check your own heart. And as you're sharing your faith, people are going to challenge you for more evidence. And we need to realize, hey, there are fair questions. And you know what's even better than that? The Bible gives us loads of answers, right? There's no questions that we should be afraid of. And we can help people understand those questions, but you need to realize lots of times you're going up against not just somebody that needs more answers. They have a heart that needs to be changed. And they might say, well, what about the Bible? Or what about science? Doesn't the science and the Bible, don't they mix? And there's answers to all of those questions, but that's not always really the issue. It's just, it's unbelief being masked by questions. Another excuse, really, of unbelief that I think is very common, the, the Pharisees, I think, believed it. People today believe it. Well, I'm a good person. And you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, and they're not arguing with you, but they're kind of like, why do I need a Savior? I'm already on the path to heaven. That's what the Pharisees thought. We're on the path to heaven. When really the reality is, no, unless they understand that they need a Savior, unless they put their faith in Christ, they will die in their sins. There's excuses that we need to cut through some of you in your own heart and excuses that we need to be prepared for. And what are we going to do about it? How do we respond as people object to the clear truth of the gospel when they don't want to believe? Well, how did Jesus respond? Where does he go in this passage? And that's where, let's get back to the end of the passage in verse 28. Verse 28, they, Jesus has rebuked them for their willful unbelief, and now he's even warned them that unless they believe in him, they will die in their sins. But now he looks to the future. He looks to the future, and he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. He looks forward, really, to the cross. And one thing that Jesus clearly loved, and John loves to play with in this gospel, is Phrases that have a, a kind of a double meaning. And that's what we see here with this phrase, lifted up. Where literally, Jesus is talking about he's going to be lifted up 
on a cross. He's going to be crucified for our sins. But also, I mean, if the, the double meaning here, if I just said to you, hey guys, let's lift up the name of Jesus today, or let's lift up Jesus today, I don't think you're going to think, oh, he's saying let's crucify Jesus. No, you probably think I'm meaning let's praise him, let's exalt him. And that's the double meaning here. Jesus is saying, when I am lifted up, when I am literally lifted up on the cross, that's when I will be lifted up and praised and worshiped because people will know that what I've been saying is true. He's pointing forward to the cross. And again, as we think through this passage and even think through it from an evangelistic lens, which we'll be doing a lot in the Gospel of John because at the end of the book, he says, hey, I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to be coming back to that a lot. And if you have believed, we're going to be reminded, hey, our mission is that we want to see others believe. And as we do that and we encounter objections, what we want to do is what Jesus did. Point number three, point people to the cross. Point people to the cross. Jesus is pointing forward at this point, saying, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. Now, I want to start by pointing out this literally happens. Jesus says, hey, when I'm lifted up, you're going to know. And what we read in the Gospels is when Jesus is crucified, people know. People get it. Again, if you've been reading through the Bible with us, we just read the crucifixion account this week in John chapter 23. And look what happens when Jesus dies. Or sorry, Luke chapter 23, excuse me. Luke chapter 23, Jesus, he, it says he calls out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He has been lifted up. He has been crucified. He has died. How do people respond? 47. Now, when the centurion, a pagan Roman general, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And we see even in the other Gospels, he, he says, surely this was the Son of God. That when Jesus was lifted up, exactly what he said happened. People knew that, it was, that he was who he was claiming to be, even this pagan Roman. And then look how it describes the crowds. Verse 48, and the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they didn't return home rejoicing or saying, hey, look at Jesus, he's dead. He isn't who he said he was. No, they went home beating their breasts because they knew that was not right. That was not what was supposed to happen. He should not have been crucified. He was the son of God. This literally happens when Jesus is crucified. People understand he is who he said he was. And as we look at elsewhere in the New Testament, we see this evangelistic example and a pattern of ministry. What we are trying to do as we point people to Christ is to tell them what Jesus did on the cross. And what, just one passage I want us to look at that really brings that home for us is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we see the Apostle Paul, an amazing evangelist, sharing some of the difficulties of sharing the gospel. And he gets to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we see it really starting there in verse 22, 1 Corinthians 1, 22. He says, for Jews demand signs. We've already seen that in the Gospel of John. And then he says, and Greeks seek wisdom. 
and we're not giving them what they want. But, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And that's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's what God is calling us to do, to point people to the cross. And some people won't receive that. They'll reject that. But God is going to work through that to save because the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we see how this affected Paul personally. Jump down to chapter 2. It says, And when I... When I, when I came to you, brothers, when I came to this city, when I shared the gospel in uh, Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And some of you, you might think, man, the Apostle Paul, this amazing evangelist traveling the known world at the time, bringing people to Christ from all different kinds of cultures, that's hard for me to relate to. Well, it might not be as hard as you think, because he described what that felt like for him, and he describes it as weakness, fear, and trembling. Can you relate to that? Some of you, when you feel called, I need to share my faith, do you fear, feel weakness, fear, and trembling? That's what Paul felt. And he realized it wasn't up to me to sound super smart and to be this super polished person. I needed to tell people the message of Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul felt, and that's what God is calling you to do. And if you feel, well, I don't know all the answers you don't need to know all the answers to tell people about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Can you learn more of those answers? Sure. And maybe as people ask you questions, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. But you start to learn more about those questions because there are answers for them. But what you want to point people back to is what I do know is I am a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. He died on the cross for our sins. That is the message that people need to hear. And that affects what we do as a church. We don't view it as our mission to kind of outsmart, outreason, outdebate everybody, or if we just can get people to think that church is cool, you know, then maybe they'll be saved. No, people need to interact with the cross of Christ. They need to put their faith in who Christ is. And so that's why, you know, I think about things like youth ministry. Our philosophy of youth ministry is not like, hey, do you think Jesus is cool? Rad, me too. Let's play dodgeball, right? That's not what we want to do. We want to get kids into the word of God, and we want to them to understand these central truths about the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why even as we do things to try to reach out to our community and in normal years, we do things like extravaganza, a big Easter egg hunt around Easter or, or fall fest on Halloween, things that we can't really do this year, but we will hopefully do again in the future. We need to realize, you know what? That's not going to save anybody. If, if our thought process is, hey, people will come and they'll have some free food and they'll think church is cool and maybe they'll start coming to church. Well, guess what? Coming to church is not how you don't die in your sins. Putting your faith in Christ is. 
And that's why our goal is we do things throughout our communities. We want to get to know people so we can build relationships with people, talk to people, invite them to church so we can get to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what people need to hear. That's what people need to respond to. It affects how we think about ministry as a church. It should also affect how you think about evangelism as a person. That it's not up to you to have the most polished, be the most persuasive, smooth speaker. No, when you feel weakness, fear, and trembling, God can still use you if you are faithful to give people the message that they need to hear, the message of Christ and him crucified. That's the message that Jesus was promoting here. That's what Paul preached. That's what we need to declare. Is the response always going to be great? No. But we see even at the end of the passage in John 8, people believing in Christ. As we go on, it's, it's hard to tell was that genuine faith or not. And as you share about Christ, you'll see people respond, and it's always hard to tell in the moment how genuine it is. But we trust that God will work as we are faithful to declare what he has called us to declare. And this should affect all of us, just even as we think through this warning in John 8. Who, who would come up with this religion on their own? Uh, who, who would draw this up? That Jesus, warning these people that they are going to die in their sins, that the only hope that they have to not die in their sins is that Jesus died for our sins. That's the message. That there is hope. We have a problem. We are all on a path to die in our sins, but the hope is Jesus died on the cross, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, for our sins, according to the scriptures. Or as we read in Isaiah 53, which I think we just read this, this week in our reading as well, that it was our transgressions that he took upon the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. It, by his wounds, we are healed. This is the good news. This is why Paul says eventually in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In this passage we're looking at today in John 8, Jesus gives a very serious warning, but we also see the solution. And the solution is is all about him and even what he pointed forward to when he was lifted up on the cross for our sins. And the other time, really, we see that Jesus being lifted up is in John 3, 15, or 14. As Moses lifted up the, servant in the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So as you think about the warning that Jesus gives, we need to make sure that we have responded to it. And then we need to have a burden. This is the message that people around us need to hear, the message of a Savior who is crucified for our sins so that we wouldn't have to die in ours. Let's pray together. God, we want to just come to you and even just admit the problem that we have, that we are not from above, that we are of this world. We are sinful people. And God, there, there's nothing that we can do to get out of it. Lord, there's nothing we can do to atone for it. We need help or we are going to die in our sins. But the whole glory of the gospel is that you have given that help, 
And you didn't even give us that help in giving us some ladder to climb and a bunch of rules and regulations to try really hard at that you gave us your son. And he lived the perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again. And it's through faith in him that we will find our sins forgiven. It's through faith in him that we will find a new heart and a new power to live a new life, to not walk in the darkness anymore, but to walk in the light of life. God, we praise you for that. And I pray, Lord, that if anybody is here, that they're still asking some of those questions. God, that they would have a genuine heart that wants to take Jesus at his word and that the power of his words and the power of the cross would work in their heart to save them. God, I pray that you would burden all of us with just the responsibility, Lord, and the danger that people around us are in that unless they put their faith in Christ, they will die in their sins. Let that give urgency even just to our prayers and our efforts to share the gospel with people around us. And God, Lord, we also just want to thank you again. Even as we thought about with communion earlier, God, help us to be grateful for what you have done for us. God, that we can have hope because of what Jesus did. Lord, that we don't have to die in our sins because Jesus died on the cross. God, fill us just with praise and with worship for, for what Jesus has done. May Jesus be lifted up today in our hearts and in our lives as we worship him and give him the praise that he deserves. God, exalt the name of Jesus among us, we pray in his name. Amen.